Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We are supposed to have our full panel, but uh, we're having a hard time getting Robert this morning. He is away out of the state at a conference, and he is um, he's unreachable at the moment. But he may join us shortly, but we do have our, what I guess now is full-time fill-in <laughs> panelist, Claire Zauke. Claire, good to see you to have you with us. Thank you. And for folks who don't know, Claire is our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. And we're really fortunate to have Claire on today because we are going to dive in deep about the prescription drug bill that's going to be moving through the house today as we record on Thursday. Yes, there's a lot more happening than impeachment. And we're going to spend a little bit of time diving in on that because we think it's super important. I think it's going to probably become a top election issue in 2020. Uh, there was some also news related to um, a trade agreement that also impacted the pharmaceutical industry. Claire's going to tell us more about that. And we have other issues. We'll talk a bit about student loans and what's been going on with DeVos and uh, defrauding student borrowers. We'll talk some more about that. But let's get started. Claire. So, yes. So, so today... In the House, they're going to pass, right? If I'm correct, we expect this to it's pass. It's expected, yeah. We're going to pass a, pres- a, a fairly significant prescription drug bill in terms of um, what it does. Uh, in particular, really going after the pharmaceutical industry and the ability to sit down and negotiate prescription drug prices with them. Um, tell us more, a little bit about the bill, why it's so important, and we'll get into the politics later, but let's at least talk substance because it's a very real significant issue right now, the cost of prescription drugs. We've talked about it a lot. So what's, what are the details on this, uh, this house bill? So this is the, uh, depending on what circle you're in and how policy wonky you want to be is called either HR three or the Elijah E. Cummings Lower Drug Costs Now like Act of 2019. Can we bury that first one and never use it again? All right. It's so much shorter just to say HR3, though. All right. No, no. <laughs> Elijah Cummings bill. This Tell us the, about the Elijah Cummings bill. This is the Elijah E. Cummings Lower Drug Costs Now Act of 2019. Can you not read the whole thing, Claire? Okay, no, this is the policy side. Uh-oh. Folks, that's what it sounds like when Dr. Robert Craig is ready to join us. Let's go listen live. Is this the Dr. Robert Craig joining us here on the Battleground Wisconsin? Robert, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? We're great. Robert, I'm glad you could call and interrupt Claire as we were just starting to talk about something that we know you care also a lot about. And that's this huge prescription drug plan that the House is uh, going to pass today. Uh, I'm going to kick it back to Claire to finish her comments about about the bill. We're going to quickly lay out why it's so important, and then we'll we'll talk about further, uh, particularly politically. We think this will be uh, really kicking off the 2020 election on this issue. Claire, back to you. Robert, we'll get to you after Claire. Claire. Yes. Yeah, so uh, as I was saying, this is the Elijah E. Cummings Lower Drugs uh, Cost Now Act, and. Uh, it's got a few components that are very important. Um, and the first one and the most controversial piece is um, that the bill allows um, for the first time the federal government to negotiate prices with 
uh, drug companies um, for uh, um, to set the prices of 250 um, most commonly used uh, prescription drugs plus all types of insulin um, for folks um, who are in uh, receive their health care through Medicare and then allows um, all insurance companies or excuse me um, other patients um, who have different types of insurance whether it's public or private to have access to those uh, prices and it does one other thing that uh, is also really important which is that uh, a lot of people don't know that there's no cap on um, spending, out-of-pocket spending for um, people who are enrolled in Medicare. And so this bill will set a, a limit um, for about $2,000 a year uh, for Medicare enrollees of, of how much they can spend out-of-pocket on prescription drugs. So, Robert, before I kick it to you for further comment, I mean, look, this just, that sounds great, but it, I assume that if we're going to be able to negotiate with the prescription drug companies, that's probably a sticking point with the Republicans, and that's probably where the opposition is coming from. Robert, your thoughts on this bill? Well, we need to divide this bill between the political and the policy in many respects. And in fact, as Democrats and people on the left, we often have trouble, it seems, as a movement, now, as individuals, uh, holding two different seemingly contradictory thoughts um, at the same time. And what I'm going to say is, is that from a political standpoint, this is very smart because this is a completely killer political issue. And the only reason it hasn't dominated elections is because neither side has uh, staked out a clear position to put the other side on the defensive. And of course, the Republican side is the one that ideologically and because of their campaign funding can never touch a hair on the head of, the, of, the, of pharma and the prescription drug corporations. So this is smart politics. It calls Trump's bluff and McConnell's bluff. They will not do anything. Trump has been claiming he wants to do something, but we know that that's a lie. And therefore, it sets it up as a potential election issue. So on that way, it's very positive. From a policy standpoint, on the other hand, it makes some important advances that are better than what's been being proposed outside of the Doggett bill, which was the more progressive uh, bill, uh, Democratic bill out there. Um, but it doesn't go nearly far enough in that's going to actually bring down prescription drug prices, uh, except for the very most expensive ones, like the specialty drug. It only includes 250 drugs, so it's going to leave a lot out. Um, it has a it doesn't it has a system where if they won't uh, negotiate if they if they charge too much i mean when you are uh, any of the drugs that are being negotiated if they won't negotiate down to the world average there's some sort of reference price then um what will happen is they can, it could be taxed but it doesn't prevent them from overcharging in that regard the problem is the reference price all over the world is too high and the problem is, is that because we're granting these virtually unlimited monopolies in practice to these big pharmaceutical companies for drugs that we, the public, researched for the most part and did most of the research to develop. And it doesn't take that on. Ultimately, we're going to get to the point of actually taking away these patents for this behavior. Uh, and so, and that's what people at United Kingdom is starting to work towards. So what I'm telling you is this is a step forward. It helps set up the issue. But even the Democratic Party, because of the strength of pharma, can't get a consensus on a bill that would actually 
take away the incredible power to price gouge that the pharmaceutical industry has. Well, so I, I, I'm well, saying this is smart politically. It's a policy advance, but it's not the gold standard. It's just a step forward. So, Robert, it's interesting when when you talk about the fact that, um, and this is where I wanted to go next, this idea that we actually subsidize most of the research for these drugs I wanted to get both of your responses, Claire and Robert, to what we're going to probably hear today and what we'll continue to hear as the rights uh, concern about this stuff is that it somehow uh, this restriction on profits will limit uh, the research and we won't have all these new drugs. And I think there was some bogus, uh, okay, there was some study that came out that suggested somehow we'd have like a hundred less or some. It quoted some number, less new drugs if this were to pass. Um, in my mind, it, I was just like, are you kidding me? I mean, this stuff is almost all funded by the government usually to get this stuff off the ground, and these folks profit off of it. Claire, I want to first get your thoughts on that, and then, Robert, yours after the break. Claire, do you have any thoughts or... Just to say that yeah. you're abs you're absolutely right. Um, there there hasn't been a, um, any major advancements in prescription drug development in the in the past uh, many years that was not funded by the federal government, um, and the, the federal government is supposed to work for us. Um, and and I would also counter that uh, even if that were true, it doesn't erase the fact that there are people who are dying now. That one in four Americans with prescription drugs has to ration their care or is under financial strain um, because of the cost of prescription drugs. So we have, and the government has, in my mind, a moral imperative to do something about the cost of prescription drugs. And, and that is just a very clear, bright line in my mind. We're going to talk more prescription drugs, but we got to take our first break of the show. Again, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are talking about the prescription drug bill that is going to pass the House today. It will die likely in the Senate, or certainly it would uh, be vetoed by Trump. And we laid out in the first, uh, first segment that this is because the pharmaceutical industry, th there's no way the Republicans and the Republican leadership will will break their love affair and, uh, well, look, they're bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. I would argue they also ideologically believe in this junk. Um, but uh, Robert very well pointed out some of the limitations of the bill, but I wanted to quickly move. This politically is dynamite uh, because the issue is so huge, because it exposes their unwillingness to actually try to rein in the industry. So I want to get comments on that as a 2020 election. And for any of our listeners who want to get involved in this issue, I do want you to reach out to Claire and we'll, we'll get you plugged in. We're going to have a major campaign around this, uh, this. But this also does lead and drive the debate of like why we need like Medicare for all, why we need a really uh, overall structural reform. Robert, I wanted to give you an opportunity to make some more final comments on the, on the bill and then the broader political implications. Yeah, I just want to let our listeners know and our uh, Citizen Action members across the state know. I'm out at a conference um, uh, on prescription drugs. This is like a, a convening of some of the top strategists nationally and from states that actually were behind Healthcare of America Now, the uh, grassroots campaign that made the Affordable Care Act possible and is still the largest progressive uh, national and state campaign ever run. And so 
we're very serious, not just Citizen Action, but all of our partners and allies, about making this prescription drugs a huge issue, not only in this election, but building towards serious structural reform. And if you think about it, prescription drug industry has not only bought off the government, it has through intellectual intellectual property law, through the patent, it has the kind of monopoly, say, utility has, like a uh, like an energy utility, uh, but it's not regulated in the same way. There's no public service commission that's approving the price increases or decreases. They have been bought out by Wall Street and by hedge funds and by venture capitalists and literally the, and run by finance, run by Wall Street, to just extract as much profit from people as possible. And by the way, they regularly only invest in drugs that are highly profitable, that they can charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for and don't even bother to create drugs that could save a ton of lives in the U.S. across the world because there's not enough profit in it. This is a, a great example of the completely profit-ridden healthcare system, and it's a level of corporate malfeasance that really reflects not just pharmaceutical industry, but what's happened to modern American capitalism, the whole financialization and the, and, and that it has occurred and the, the, the taking of resources from everyone else to the top 1%, no matter what the cost to life and to liberty. And so this is going to be the beginning, what I'm out here in D.C. on, of a major campaign. And Claire is going to be our point person on the ground. So if you want to get involved, uh, let Claire know. I'd love to have you. <laughs> so, folks, this thing will go down because of what we talked about, uh, Big Pharma. And Robert Ackerley points out Big Pharma pollutes all of our political process. Claire, some final thoughts? The, my final thought is this, that, um, you know, President Trump is is really good at talking a lot, right? He just, <laughs> he just talks a lot. And, and one he of tweets. The, and he tweets a lot. Um, but specifically, um, yes. one of the things that he could potentially sound the most reasonable on, and, it, and it's a little scary, is prescription drug costs. Because he likes to talk about the fact that prescription drug costs are too high. And that how he will b work to bring down the drug costs, right? But... The Republican bill that he says that he would be interested in supporting has none of the things that the Elijah Cummings bill has that would actually bring down costs, even if it's only for insulin and 250 drugs for um, for uh, illnesses like multiple sclerosis. Right. Things that could have a really big effect, um, albeit a, only as a first step. Right. So, but the Republican bill has has none of those things. It does not allow the government to negotiate prices. It has a an out of pocket maximum for um, patients on Medicaid uh, Medicare that is fifty percent higher than the Elijah Cummings bill, right? And so we need to be diligent in calling out Trump for the gap between his rhetoric on prescription drugs and his actions on prescription drugs. Because he has said that he would veto this bill when it gets to his desk, if it were to get in his desk, if Republicans in the Senate were to, were to pass this bill. Um, and in fact, actively supports a bill that does none of the cost-saving things. Um, and um, only after um, congressional Democrats forced a months-long negotiation process um, took out the, um, originally in the new NAFTA agreement um, that was just passed this week, wanted to codify some protections for drug companies that would have actually increased drug costs for many people and only agreed to take those out after uh, congressional Democrats um, sort, of, sort of brought him to his knees on, on those negotiations, right? So there was a huge gap there. And so I think that 
um, politically, this issue um, is going to be really important for um, for us as an organization doing advocacy work because we need to be out there in the community demonstrating that that Trump is wrong on this issue, that he is lying to us on this issue. He does not actually support measures that would bring down prescription drug costs so that the community, when Trump comes to Wisconsin, because I'm sure he will, and he talks about prescription drug prices, that our community says, we don't believe you. We know that you don't actually care about lowering prescription drug cri- uh, costs for us. So with that, we're, we're going to continue to obviously talk more about this issue. Again, want to remind folks, if you're interested in getting involved, if you have a story, if you, you know, uh, around health care, please contact Claire. We're going to have a, as we said, a large campaign in 2020 on this. And again, we always, you know, we work on health care broadly, and, and this will always be put in the context of what Robert said, that we need an increasingly more uh, public system in the and in, in getting the privatizers and uh, the private uh, incentives out of healthcare. Before we take a break, I did want to bring up um, a new book that's out. It's uh, uh, and it has uh, new data about uh, the the uh, the wealth and the inequality in this country, and it's played out by looking at the tax rates. Uh, here in America. And in 2018, for the first time, the super rich, which is uh, ca- uh, classified as the f- uh, 400 richest families, paid less marginal tax rate, effective tax rate, excuse me, than regular working class folks, which in this case they're, they're looking at and calling the bottom 50%. Um, this is all you need to know about what's fundamentally wrong with our current system both, Robert, you mentioned capitalism, but just also how it's polluting our governmental process, the notion that um, in this country where a lot of the opportunity and freedom that people have gotten is because of a progressive tax structure that we're able to actually provide the kind of services that we need. Um, this study's revealing, and it, you know, when people tell you there isn't money for Medicare for All, there isn't money to try to avoid, as Robert calls it, a climate genocide, uh, with Green New Deal legislation or other things that people are trying to do locally. This reveals all the lies in that and why, quote, there isn't the money currently in our system. Um, Robert, I'll go to you first for any thoughts you have uh, before we go to the break on this study. How's the lie to everything we hear in Republican rhetoric and a lot of what we hear in kind of mainline Democratic rhetoric because You've heard Robin Boss say that poor people don't pay taxes and that he's representing the taxpayers. They pay more taxes as a proportion of their income than the 400 richest people in the country. Just remember that. This is absolutely outrageous, and it shows that if you create income inequality, it actually leads to political inequality, and then the rich use rig the system over and over again, and they want more tax cuts. There's no end in sight after the Trump tax cuts and all the tax cuts in the Walker administration. And they're all for the people who already do the best in our society and pay the least back. It's unethical. We used to have an ethic that people who did well in the society paid it forward to everyone else. And that's been lost since the Reagan era. And it's part and parcel of modern conservatism, this selfishness and greed and inequality. Yeah, by the way, this doesn't even... Talk about what we've done to the business tax rate. We've talked about Foxconn here a lot. And the big the big thing behind Foxconn is not only did they get that sweetheart deal, but because 
businesses pay virtually no taxes in the state because the manufacturer agricultural tax credit and other tax policies we have here, they literally most a lot of businesses don't pay any tax rate. In fact, Foxconn, because of the deal, we're, we're, we, we are in the position where we're turning over money to Foxconn. So anyways, I wanted to make sure that this this study got some light because it's part of the structural problem we have in terms of people's perceptions about what's possible, what could we pay for uh, right now in America. But with that, we are going to take a break uh, here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Dot org. Okay, we are going to spend some time talking about an issue. Gosh, you know, we ought to probably spend a little bit more time talking about and actually really think it's critical going forward uh, to changing uh, this country. And that is our education system, particularly how we fund and pay for people to go to college, to go to tech school, to go to second, you know, community college, anything post high school, where for some reason, it was we were smart enough to decide we need to set up structures to get people through high school. Our brains shut down somewhere over the last couple generations, and as the world continued to evolve, and you either needed to go to college, go to a technical school, go get specific training post high school, it's pretty much where a lot of folks got to go. Right? Uh, we don't fund that. In fact, we've actually set up a structure where, similar to the pharmaceutical industry, we have all kinds of profiteering going on in our student loan system, and this is blown up nationally. Uh, Betsy DeVos is in the middle of it. But we have a whole number of borrowers, largely people of modest to virtually little means, largely, uh, obviously, younger folks, people of color, impacted and caught up in the system that has, quite frankly, defrauded student borrowers. Claire, I know this is uh, a big issue. Robert, I can't wait to get to you. I know you've worked a lot on student loan issues. Um, but just your initial thoughts on this. And quite frankly, it's been going on too long. The education department has been screwing quite with, with lenders for a huge time that have been defrauded uh, in the system. And this doesn't even get into the ones who were supposed to get their money back, who had, <laughs> who had, done, uh, who had made uh, guarantees that they would work in communities. That's a whole other system that screwed up. Mm -hmm. But Claire... This whole situation around the student yeah. loans. So before we go to uh, Robert for comment, how about I just lay out uh, what was revealed this week? Uh, and that is that um, before Betsy DeVos was sworn in as um, education secretary, the uh, department had been recommending full relief for student loans taken out by students um, at now defunct for-profit colleges that were found to be basically fraudulent institutions um, misrepresenting themselves. Um, and the their... ITT techs of the world. Yeah, yeah, right. So um, exam uh, for example, the um, Corinthian Colleges is another one. Everest, um, ITT Tech. Yep, probably yep. one of them. We've yep. had some very famous ones here in Milwaukee, the one that set up shop right across from MATC and went under very quickly. Yep, uh, exactly. So there are multiple memos from January of 2017, the last days of 
before Betsy DeVos was sworn into office last um, days of the uh, Obama administration that were saying things like, uh, you know, Corinthian consistently consistently represented that all graduates obtained jobs after graduation, um, that they had guaranteed employment, things like that, right? And that these were just all blatant lies. And so they recommended full relief from loans for those students. Betsy DeVos came in and immediately said that she did not think that people um, who should, should former students should receive relief um, on their loans because of what these institutions did. And so instead, um, she has released a new formula, basically, for trying to determine how much harm these students actually incurred, right? So, so did they actually suffer anything because of the fraudulent institution that they attended and gave money to and incurred debt because of. And she's calculating that in this weird convoluted way of comparing their medium income now to the medium incomes of people who studied in a similar or same program in a more reputable institution and finding the difference. And depending on how big that difference is, they'll get a fraction of relief from their loans, but not full relief. And under this new formula, almost nobody is going to is going to qualify for full relief. Um, and it's, it's just another way to nickel and dime um, people who are all already um, victims of, a, of these terrible institutions, of a system um, that exploited them and doesn't value them, um, and already folks who have lost years of earning potential and likely started out as um, low-income folks to begin with. Um, it's, it's really unconscionable. Robert, your thoughts? So let's, let's review who Betsy DeVos is. She's from the Amway fortune. She's from Michigan. And she's one of she and her family are one of the major backers of the voucher school and charter school movement. A lot of the um, politicians who have run on vouchers in Milwaukee, a lot of the funding for even getting uh, get for funding all of the political work that got vouchers established in Milwaukee in an attempt to undermine Milwaukee public schools came from the divorces. So be aware of who this is, and this is who President Trump, the kind of person President Trump has put in front of, made a secretary of education, but of course he has a whole cabinet full of rogues, as we know. It's just embarrassing, department by department. The second thing here to bear in mind is, I guess it's not a shock that Betsy DeVos doesn't give a damn about students who have been defrauded by for-profit universities. She doesn't even care about, you know, low-rent voucher schools either. She's promoted them. Uh, But you need to understand that, I mean, it's got to be pretty bad for the Department of Education to want to forgive all the loans. This is like an egregious case where these, uh, these schools went out of business. The degrees are worthless. The students are dramatically in debt, and this is years later. They've already suffered, and they've had these loans on the books and demands for payment. And you can't declare bankruptcy and get out of student loans. One of the, I mean, you can, it's amazing. You can corporations can declare bankruptcy whenever they want after they're looted by venture capitalists and hedge funds, but uh, individuals can't declare bankruptcy uh, regarding and and not still have their student loan obligations. But this goes back even further, Matt and Claire. I can tell you that. I was on the, ma- the major federal advisory committee in the 90s that advises Congress and the president of student financial aid policy. And uh, the Clinton era Department of Education officials made it clear that we shouldn't even allow student loans for these for-profit schools. But it was impossible to prevent it because these are it's substandard education. It's just looting of people um, that literally 
it was possible to prevent it because of their power in Congress, and it wasn't just Republicans. There are a lot of Democrats, even Democrats who have reputations that would defend these proprietary schools. And so this has been a problem that's developing for a long time, uh, but it, it, it's just shocking the lengths to which Trump and his people and the conservative movement of our society doesn't care about what happens to people who are trying to struggle and, and get ahead and are defrauded by big corporations, is what we're talking about here. And the business elite in Milwaukee cheerleaded for things like, was it, the, was it Everest? Was that the school that came in? It was yes. part of Corinthians, right, Matt? Yes, it was right next and, to UWM, I believe. Excuse and me, Tim the, the, the head of the Milwaukee Metropolitan Association of Commerce, who's always quoted as a major economic and business leader all the time, cheerleaded for it, as he did for Foxconn, and no, no accountability when the thing just closed and left all these low-income students with huge debt and uh, just holding the bag and no degree. And so that's what's being promoted by the business elite and by modern conservatism. They just see uh, regular human beings, everyone else, all of us that are not in the top 1% as people to be fleeced and, so, and have wealth extracted from them. So, I, look, I totally agree with what y'all just said. Um, and what I, well, I want to expand this even further right now to just say, like, what we're paying right now to go to even high quality, great institutions or good, reputable institutions is outrageous. It is completely unsustainable. Everybody deserves access to quality education. But the reality is, over the past 30 years, we have slashed funding and spending. Um, and that's been under all different kinds of administrations, both federal and state. And the cost of higher education has gone out. It's outpaced inflation by over 400%. And similar to healthcare, it's outrageous because everybody, if you want access to the 21st century American dream, you need some type of support beyond high school, whether that be a technical skill, a community college. But these things, even the public institutions, are becoming unaffordable. UWM is over $12,000 a year. Our state schools are outrageously expensive. And that debt even has to be taken on to go to good, reputable schools. It is why this debate is being driven nationally for free college. This is absolutely a critical economic issue, and it's an issue about equality and really trying to create the 21st century economy that all of our communities need. Um, and so it's just outrageous that we haven't figured this out, that people are having to put themselves in debt even to get good, reputable, much less trash degrees. And so, you know, I just, I, I hope all of this continues to drive the debate. I am thrilled there are presidential candidates that are talking about this issue. We have got to start to talk about it and make it more of an issue on the state level. This, is a, this will inspire a whole new generation of people to think about what our government ought to be doing. And it's crises like this that just reveal bare how fundamentally flawed this current system is. It's appalling to me. I just, um, you know, DeVos is so wrong, but the idea that even people are saddled with these debts for reputable, it's just insane. We're, we're cutting off our, our, our economic opportunity with this, with this ridiculous system. But with that, I'm sorry, we got to take a break. I don't always go off, but there you go. Um, very, this issue just upsets me. So we're going to take a break. We got another segment coming back here on the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. 
Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. I wanted to get the panel's response to something that I thought was important this week. It may not be you know, as big as impeachment, as big as uh, huge prescription drug bills, but uh, this week, 26, excuse me, 27 senators uh, sent a letter to President Trump asking him to fire his immigration advisor, Stephen Miller. And let's just be blunt, it's because the guy is, he's racist, he's a white nationalist, and it was refreshing to see him called out, Claire, we need more of this, because um, it does, we need to keep reminding and exposing the fact that, like, this isn't just a distasteful president, this is a president who has aligned himself with white nationalists. And, and not just aligned uh, himself with white nationalists, but put white nationalists in positions of extreme power exactly. in, uh, in his administration. Uh, so one of the things that the senators, including Senator Baldwin, said in their statement here is that um, this is somebody who has clearly demonstrated him to be, himself to be a white nationalist and then is um, part of being an architect of um, Trump's racist and incredibly um, harmful um, and unhumane treatment of immigrants at the border. Um, with with Mexico. So, uh, yeah, he absolutely should go. Robert, your thoughts? Well, I'm kind of surprised it's only 27 senators. Not sure what... Thank you for calling that out. (laughs) Agreed. Nonetheless, yes, I did that number specifically because it doesn't mean all the Democrats are there. Only a little over 100 members of the House in a concurrent resolution is my understanding. Look, I mean, this is absolutely atrocious. Uh, I don't even, we don't even need all the evidence from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is damning about his white nationalist stands, to understand what this is the guy behind family separation. This is the guy behind the whole strategy of scapegoating uh, immigrants for all of our country's problems to rev up um, ang- angry non-college white folks who, who – in order to kind of bait and switch, make them blame someone else rather than the economic elite that is responsible for disinvesting in their communities and, and in, in the, where they, if they, they lost a job, where they lost their job. And so, look, I mean, the problem is, is that this is, this is around winning an election because obviously Donald Trump has chosen Stephen Miller for a reason. This reflects the president's views. And the only way to defeat uh, this if we're not going to be able to have any balance or checks and balances because the president's repeatedly broken the law and immigration policy with no actual consequences, is to remove President Trump from office. But I think it's a useful exercise because the more attention we can call to the extremism of the Trump administration and how we are literally going back to a dark period in American and European history uh, that we thought we'd gotten over after World War II. This all harkens back quite frankly, to the, the racism that, uh, that developed and matured into fascism in the 1920s and 1930s and created the genocide. Well, Robert, I'm glad you did point out the, just the, sh- the lack of actual numbers, given that there are 100 senators, in case uh, we forgot, and there are only 20, less than 30, right, that mm-hmm. are on this, which, you know, I mean, given who this guy is, we'd like to see it further, but I, I mean, I did want to call out and give Senator Baldwin, you know, a shout out for being a part of this group that is calling this out um, and trying to get press, and we wanted to make sure uh, folks know that it's happening. It is unlikely Trump will obviously do anything. Uh, in his 
mind, I would imagine this is all helpful to him to remind the white nationalists of the great, great things he has done for them. Um, we're going to spend a little time talking about impeachment before we go. But before we do, I do want to mention to our listeners a very important thing that has happened this week, particularly in the Milwaukee area. And that is, uh, as of tonight, most likely uh, the Milwaukee Public School Board is going to put a referendum on its ballot to raise resources, additional resources for the district. And this would be the first time since the early 90s there's even been an effort. Uh, and it is desperately needed in the district. And so we are encouraging members, uh, if you can, uh, if you live in the area, please get out and help support this. Um, there is a Facebook page called Yes for MPS. Go like the page. You can also make a donation. There'll be an, uh, hopefully a very, um, there should be a very robust campaign in support of our children and making sure that we invest in their futures. Uh, but look for more of that online. We'll talk more about that down the road as it gets closer, but that would likely be on the April ballot. So, folks, we're putting it at the end this week, impeachment. We want to continue to talk about it because it is historic. It is incredibly important. But we also don't want to um, not talk about the other things like prescription drugs and other big things that are still happening in spite of impeachment. Claire, as we record, the House is, um, the, well, the Judicial Committee is considering two right two articles of impeachment. Your thoughts? Anything new this week before we go on uh, on the state of impeachment here in America? I, I just think it's an incredibly interesting and exciting time um, to be paying attention to um, the impeachment. Uh, we're heading into a new uh, phase. Obviously, they've introduced the articles. Um, I think it was interesting to note. Um, what the uh, what the articles were, um, I I was curious to see whether there would be an article um, explicitly tied to the Mueller investigation, and in addition to the Ukraine investigation. Obviously, now we've seen them come out, and they're more focused on Ukraine, with just a, a sprinkling of Mueller <laughs> throughout uh, for some flavor, if you will. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, but no um, article explicitly tied to to just that. Um, so it's uh, it'll be really interesting to to see how this plays out. Robert, any impeachment thoughts you might have this week from D.C.? Just a reflection on the nature of modern American politics, which is getting more polarized in a bad way. And I don't mean the, gee, let's all get along and be bipartisan. What I mean is with the rise of the right-wing media and uh, Fox News, literally the Republican side has its own set of facts, and it's not actually rooted in facts. And so to watch the dueling five-minute speeches back and forth on Judiciary Committee is stunning because it's as if the Republicans live in some alternative universe, and they do because they do not have to account for or address any of the actual facts around what the president actually did. And this is exactly the kind of partisanship. Remember, the Founding Fathers had real doubts about what they called factions. They thought they destroyed republics. This is the kind of ideological faction which makes it impossible to govern because it's the Republican position that you have to have a bipartisan impeachment. But if there's nothing a president can do, who's your president, or if, you, if he's a right-wing president, to get impeached, then there's no impeachment clause. In fact, there's no checks and balances and there's no constitution. So this is the ideology that's been built up on the right is exceedingly dangerous. In fact, I would say that it's the greatest danger to the future of human civilization, given the climate catastrophe that is that need, that requires immediate action, which we can't take because of modern conservatives. 
So we're going to continue. We'll, we'll continue to track impeachment. Um, Robert, I'm also extremely struck by just how partisan this is and just we live in two different factual worlds. And um, we'll see how damaging that is long term, but it does appear to be fixed and not likely to change early next year in the Senate. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to talk about this issue uh, going forward. Um, I do want to uh, say a couple of things. One is, first, I want to thank all of the co-op members uh, who joined in and participated in our annual meeting last Saturday. It was very exciting. Uh, we had our meeting in Milwaukee, but then had satellite meetings in, in um, De Pere, in Wausau, in Eau Claire, in Verona. Uh, and in uh, western Wisconsin, where we have a new co-op in the Driftless area, and there was also a meeting of over 20 people in La Crosse. And so it was very exciting to hear all of the things and all of the very exciting victories and activities that the different co-ops have been involved in, both individually but also collectively. Um, the amazing efforts around Badger Care this year and to be able to share that, but also honor a lot of the folks who did that work. Um, but look forward, and we did a lot of planning for 2020, which is going to be absolutely critical going forward. And it's very exciting to have been able to strategize uh, across the state with members and leaders about how we're going to have a very exciting 2020 election cycle here at Citizen Action, but also throughout the state. And you may be wondering, where's Sarah? Where's, where's the Godlewski? State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski scheduled to join us. Where, where is the Godlewski? Well, we just we're happy to report, um, Sarah. We had mentioned earlier. She had mentioned about all her struggles around dealing with um, how do you prepare for uh, paternity, maternity leave, right? When you have a child, uh, there were none such preparations in the treasurer's office. She has now had her her child, uh, and she sent some beautiful pictures over this morning. We want to congratulate the whole Godlewski family. Uh, to 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 have their first child, so it's very exciting. I'm sure we'll hear more next year about it, but we just wanted to to thank Sarah first for having run for this office, but then for having led the way she has, where she truly tries to co-govern with the progressive movement and leaders throughout the state in the way she is rebuilding the treasurer's office. So we uh, salute you and your family. With that, we got to end this battleground, Wisconsin. We want to thank Robert for joining us uh, in D.C. Of course, our special guest. Uh, uh, panelist who's been with us now for about a month, Claire, and our producer, Brian Wilkins, who makes this happen every week. We will see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.